first, let's begin in China, because I'm not sure if you've seen images on social media over the weekend, but something happened over the weekend that happens very rarely there, and that was widespread protests. Um, they weren't massive by any standards, but they were big enough and they were angry enough. Um, in a nutshell, they have to do with frustration over what has been a very long period of very hard-hitting COVID restrictions. Zero COVID is what the policy is called there. And just to give you an idea of what that means, that means sort of weeks and weeks and weeks of lockdowns where you can't leave your house. You have to have, if you're lucky, the government delivers food to you. Now, this is not everywhere all at once, but these are the sorts of things that happens. Um, in some areas, you, you can be tested four, five, six times a week for COVID. And if you don't have your test results, you can't go shopping. You can't leave your compound where you live. It is it is incredibly severe. People here who complain about mask mandates, all that stuff about you know vaccine mandates at the border, this is nothing, nothing remotely like this. This is at a whole new level. So there was a fire in the Western city of Urumuchi recently. Um, a high-rise tower caught fire. 10 people died. That's in the uh, province of Xinjiang. Um, and part of the anger over that was there was concern that it was actually these restrictions that had led to parts of the, the lock, the lockdown itself that had trapped people in their apartments where they were, uh, inevitably, unfortunately left to die in this fire. So here's how it erupted. There were protests in many different cities, as many as seven over the weekend, including the capital of Beijing and dozens of university campuses. Here's what one of them sounded like. Now, there have been solidarity gatherings around the world, including here in Canada last night. Uh, this is Vancouver. The sound in Vancouver last night. Now, it appears to have died down a bit today. Um, there's been a heavy police presence in many areas. They put up barriers. There's a real way that they go about restricting these protests. And that seems to have kicked into gear uh, after what happened over the weekend. It also all comes as Canada releases its long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy. They did that yesterday, uh, which promises new spending over the next five years, an increase in trade and so forth. And joining me now with more on this is Charles Burton. He's a former Canadian diplomat in Beijing and a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Thanks. Welcome back. It's good to speak with you, Ben. You know, uh, people always used to ask when, when I was living there, protests aren't unheard of. There are often protests in China, whether it be, you know, laborers angry about conditions at their factory or people who've been bilked out of money in a, in, a, in a development scheme. But we rarely see anything like this. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there have been these isolated um, incidents, you know, your typical thing, the factory manager takes all the funds and decamps to Toronto and the workers aren't getting their their salary and they're not getting their pension and so they protest and then the local authorities come up with some solution and and everybody goes home more or less appeased this is different you know this this is uh, simultaneous demonstrations occurring in uh, seven different cities in china um, with some degree of interaction between them probably using vpns and telegram the police have been you know, uh, demanding that people show their phones so that they don't have these illegal 
VPNs or illegal encrypted uh, communications programs on them. Um, I think that, you know, the, the concern about these uh, demonstrations is that, of course, they are, as you say, stimulated by the tragic death of people that had been locked into their apartments and couldn't escape when the building went on fire. But I think they're also about, you know, a general attitude towards the current party leadership, um, you know, that, that Xi Jinping is is the leader, the leader more or less permanently, you know, who decided that aside from Mr. Xi and, and some cronies, you know, it doesn't reflect anything in the popular will. The um, declining economy, um, uh, internet censorship, uh, you know, some... Some people were wearing masks that had 404 written on them for the error you get when you try and load up a site that's not allowed in China. Um, you know, uh, unemployment among youth um, and, of course, COVID and the fact that there's so many restrictions. You know, uh, people, a lot of people who are trapped in their apartments are not earning any income unless they're able to get out there and work. So I, I think that, that it's, a, it's a serious moment of of um uh, the co- the you know the the coalescing of of a whole lot of factors and and if we see you know more instances like this more tragic instances or if covid really starts to run rampant through china and you're seeing a high rate of of disease and death i i think we really could see a a popular movement that would demand uh, the end of Chinese communism. I think it could be that far. Wow, because that, I mean, it's always, obviously, I, mean, I, I remember protests in China, even more coordinated ones back during the color revolutions or, or the flower revolutions in different parts of the world. There was a bit of a, a bit of a, sort of a spark in China at one point. It went away very quickly. You know, the, the authorities are, <laughs> are well used to crushing these sorts of things. Uh, and I think we're seeing it already. But w- yeah, really, to that extent, I, no, I think you're, when you talk about the fact that the anger is, the COVID is the spark, right? The heavy handedness is this around COVID is the spark. But, you know, the A4, the blank pages that people are holding up, that's not about yeah. COVID. That's about, that's about much more than that. That's about not having a voice. And, and, you know, it's that, that, uh, yeah, that, that could, you're right, that could certainly turn into something bigger if it were to continue. Yeah, I mean, the difference, you know, if you look back at the 1989 Tiananmen incident, at that time, people were calling for the party to bring in democratic reform. They weren't calling for, you know, the end of, of common, the communist system in China. But this time, I, I think that they, there really isn't, there aren't any figures in China that hold people's hope. And if the regime, you know, cracks down too hard on on these kinds of protests, then it'll bring more um, more popular support for the movement. If the regime does not crack down hard enough, then you could see the development of a of a political alternative underground that could corrode the system from within. You know, similar to like Václav Havel in in, the, in Czechoslovakia or Lech Walesa right. in Poland, where there was a sort of alternative um, vector for people to to pin their political aspirations to. So I, I, you know, it's hard to say if this thing will just fade away and be forgotten. But I think the factors that are leading to a, a great degree of dissatisfaction and alienation on the part of particularly young people. Uh, will endure. And so I don't think this thing will just go away by itself. 
What's interesting is you have perhaps one of the more patriotic generations now in this younger Chinese generation there. They're certainly not, you know, they're certainly not uh, anti-China by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but the idea that they now are living under a leader who just anointed himself a dictator for life, essentially, um, may have not been as popular as he thought it was. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think, I mean, I don't think anybody, uh, aside from Mr. Xi and those around him, thought it was a good idea for him to have an indefinite term of office, you know, either within the party or outside the party. And so he may have gone a step too far. And I think his, you know, his interest in in fulfilling his, what he regards as destiny or the community of common destiny of mankind, the rejuvenation of China, the restoration of a China-oriented global order, you know, the Belt and Road reordering the entire global economy towards China. I mean, what these things are taking away from is actually dealing with the people, you know, dealing with the people's desire for for freedoms, for citizens' rights, for, for, for you know, cultural expression, all of which seem to be um, subordinated by sea to these these larger schemes based on on him spending a lot of time reading history books as opposed to to looking into how he can make the Chinese Communist Party relevant to the contemporary values of Chinese people you know it's yeah. just it's, it's just the the party slogans the everything about the party is is really not very much connected to the life of of modern Chinese people today central tenet of our Indo-Pacific strategy is acting in Canada's national interests without compromising our values. It is about positioning Canada as being a reliable partner now and for generations to come. Melanie Jolie in Vancouver yesterday. Charles Burton is with us. He's a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. We're talking about, uh, we were talking about protests in China. And as they were going on, uh, Canada releases this very important document on our approach to the Indo-Pacific. Um, I mean, that was, that was, <laughs> that was written by a, you know, that was written by a communication staff, clearly, because she didn't say much in that clip. Um, but $2.3 billion sounds okay in terms of funding. It seemed relatively well thought out. What did you think about, uh, about what you heard? And is the devil in the details here? Well, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, we're talking about four or five hundred million uh, a year. I mean, certainly there's some very high ambitions with regard to that money helping us to defend our Arctic against uh, China's uh, desire to to encourage to, to to have incursions into the Arctic region or to make a significant contribution to um, uh, the, the United States, UK, and Australia in um, Indo-Pacific security, I think we'll have another one additional freighter that will be able to do things like freedom of navigation exercises. I, I'm not sure that that we're seeing anything which is a fundamental change in Canada's approach to, to China. The, the characterization of China is a bit mealy-mouthed, you know, um, increasing um, increasingly um, disruptive in, in, global power, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would yeah. prefer if we said it's a strategic competitor, you know, right. which is much more, much more realistic and isn't mincing words because China is. And I'm not sure that our idea that we can, on the one hand, you know, cra- um, 
um, not appease China on things like the Uyghur genocide or human rights and security issues and still um, maintain the trade relationship and and engage China on multilateral matters like climate change or global poverty or or um, you know putting the brakes on North Korea's like utterly terrifying uh, nuclear missile program. I you know I'll believe it when I see it, but uh, I, I would have liked to have seen the policy talk about a foreign influence transparency scheme act. You know something that would require right. people who yeah. are influential in the China policy process having to to be transparent about any benefits that they're receiving from China so that we could assess conflict of interest. That's that's not in there. And they don't talk about genocide with regard to the Uyghurs, even though the Commons has a unanimous resolution that it is genocide. And there isn't much, you know, specific about whether we're going to do anything about Chinese operations on our soil to menace people in Canada, the police stations, the um, you know the election interference doesn't seem to be something which is highlighted, or um, you know or China's uh, pervasive espionage to obtain dual-use military technologies. I would have liked to have seen you know a bit more pointed language. Although I'm encouraged by by the government giving more resources to CSIS, RCMP, and global affairs to develop China expertise. I think that's got to be good. So. You know, you've got a policy, you hope they implement it, and I think that we will be pushed by our allies to to uh, have a stronger policy, more in alignment with what other countries are doing. You know, the British government announced a policy today, and it's much more direct and straightforward than than this document, which I think, as you suspect, was produced by some sort of communications team. <laughs> well, it sounded like it, you know, for generations. Anytime I hear for generations to come, I'm thinking, she didn't know, the minister <laughs> didn't write that. Uh, Charles, Burton, Charles Burton, as always, thank you so much for your time. Great to speak with you again, Ben.